talked about music, and you guys had a chance to kind of get your hillbilly on, and that was good. It was, we had a good time together. And um, this week, we're going to move on. Actually, this week was kind of the first part of a, of a two-part little mini-series within a series um, that we're going to talk about, and hopefully begin to get you thinking a little bit differently about some of the things that we do in worship. Um, I've shared this with you before, but my, like my first recollections of going to church, I was 15 years old, so, and I didn't grow up in the church. When I first started going to church, it was a small Baptist church down the street from where I lived, so it was really weird, just like really different than anything I'd experienced before. But I've been thinking, because that was 35, actually 36 years ago, and, um, and when I first started going to church, um, it was a lot different than it is today. Like, first of all, I was here last night talking about it, and like no, you know, 30, 36 years ago, no self-respecting Christian went to church on Saturday night. So first of all, it only happened on Sunday morning. And then before, back then, before you went to a worship service, you did something else first. You went to Sunday school, that's right. Remember that? So you always went to Sunday school before you went to church. And so I went to this church where the, the pastor and the youth pastor were father and son. And the pastor really liked to preach and the son really liked to preach. And so we'd go to Sunday school first and the, and the youth pastor would preach. And then we'd go into church and uh, the father, Pastor Frank, would um, preach and we'd like some of my first recollections of church were like the, like the bulletins were a lot different than they are today. And you might remember this. It was the same way when I first came here. Churches didn't, you know, they didn't have color copy machines. So they would just mimeograph. Anybody remember mimeograph? And so what you churches did is they bought these pre-printed colored cover bulletins that you'd print the inside information. But on the cover was, it was kind of state of the art. It was color printing. It's like one week there might be a sunset and, and the next week there might be like a picture, you know, like a, a portrait of Luther, which was weird in a Baptist church. Like where's Zwingli, but it would be Luther. And then like the next week might be kittens. And then the next week, like every eight weeks, and I'm not making this up, every eight weeks or so there would be like hula dancers on the cover. And we were really a conservative church, so we always threw the hula dancers away. So you just kind of, and then you broke out the next week and you were a little bit behind. But we had these pre-printed bulletins that were mimeographed off. And, you know, you, you, you come into the church service. And when in this church I went to, you had to be really quiet when you came into church. They weren't playing music and people weren't talking and having coffee and all hyped up on caffeine. You had to be really quiet and walk in and have a seat. And the pianist was playing the prelude. Remember the prelude? They'd be pray, playing the prelude and you'd have to be real quiet and then the service would start. And we had like, I always thought we had two parts to the service. We had the worship part and the teaching part. We had the music part and, and the sermon part. And I always kind of thought in those early years, like those were two different kind of things altogether. Now with the preaching part, um, our senior pastor, um, he was... The first series I ever remember him teaching was on the book of Philippians. And he called it, I'm not making this up, it was called Flipping Through Philippians. It lasted a couple of years. For a couple of years, we were flipping through Philippians. And I actually kind of forgot about it. And then a couple of years ago, that my senior pastor from when I was in high school, who I thought was old um, back then, which it turns out he was about the same age I am now. Um, but I thought he was really old. And he's still, like, he's in his 80s. And um, I saw where he was writing devotionals for a church. And the devotionals were based on flipping through Philippians. So apparently he liked it, and he's still flipping through Philippians today. But we would, like, he would pass out um, sermon outlines and, and handouts and notes, you know. And you didn't fill in the blanks back then because we didn't have a screen and, and uh so there would have like, it, it would have an outline and it might have some Greek words in there. 
And you didn't write on the outline back then anyways. You had Bibles with great big margins. Did you guys ever do that? Like you would find a Bible with the biggest margins possible. And then in my church, I admit it, we would get like, we would get all these colored highlighters and we'd have like a highlighting system for our Bible. So as a pastor would preach, like you might have red highlighter for maybe like that. You highlighted things like you're not supposed to do this. And then maybe if it was a passage on things you're supposed to do, you might use green. And I, I apparently, looking back, I, I must have wore a pocket protector. I don't remember it, but I had like f- five, six highlighter color. And I don't know what any of it means. I still have the Bible, but everything. And then if you were super spiritual, you like wrote notes in the margin and you would even date it and stuff. And now I look back and I have no idea what like any of my notes mean, but that's, that's what we did back then. And so we'd have like the singing time and then the, the preaching time, the worship time, and then the, the teaching time. And what I didn't understand for years and years and years was that really there's no division between those two. All of that is worship. Now I know it's easy to think about singing as worship, but I don't know if you ever think about the teaching time as worship. But I want to talk a little bit uh, about that today as we're talking about that in this series. And here's the question I want to ask. Why is the teaching of God's Word so prominent in a corporate worship service? Not just today, but it always has historically been in the church. Why is it that in a typical church weekend, we spend um, more than half of the time in here um, teaching on the Word of God? I mean, that's pretty significant when you think about it. Why don't we, why don't we spend more, t- more of our time singing? Why don't we spend more of our time sharing or visiting? Why is so much time spent in the Word of God? And really to get a handle on, on that, um, you have to kind of go all the way back to the beginning of the series and ask the question, what is worship? I mean, what is worship when it gets right down to it? We said the first week that worship has two basic ingredients. It's spirit and truth. Uh, we gave you one definition that said worship is, just at its essence, worship is magnifying or glorifying God. You might remember that. We said really it's just magnifying God. Worship is when we come to God and we see something of Him in the Word. We see it, we read about it, our heart grabs onto it, and we reflect it back to Him in praise. That really is the essence of worship. It's seeing God and enjoying God. It's a word we've used a lot in this series. Worship is seeing God and then enjoying God. But the, the, the challenge is none of us are born with a clear comprehension of who God is. None of us are born with that. And so that's why throughout history, human beings have put together different kinds of philosophies, which are meant to, to explain God. Um, that's why we have different kinds of religions and um, moral codes, and even some people just practice spirituality in, in, in general. These are all attempts to try to understand who God is and what God is like and how we can have a relationship with Him. Now, the good news is that we don't need to speculate what God is like because he's communicated that with us. It's been noted that our God is a God of communication. He loves to communicate with his people. And God has chosen to lift the fog of human speculation with what we would call divine revelation. Divine revelation is just the communication that God has given to humanity with a clarity about him that would otherwise be impossible. And the result of, of all of this divine communication is, is the Bible. Um, in 2 Timothy 3, which is going to be our text today, 2 Timothy 3, 16 through chapter 4, verse 2, notice how it starts. Um, 
Paul is writing and he writes this. Now, all Scripture is inspired by God. And that word inspired, literally in the Greek, it means God breathed. So all of the Scripture that we have is literally God breathed. And in 2 Peter, it explains a little bit what that, what that means. It says, for no prophecy, that is the Scripture that you have, was ever produced by the will of a man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And so what it tells us here is that, is that God wrote Scripture in concert with, with people throughout history who, whom God led along through the power of His Spirit. And we talk a lot of times about verbal inspiration. And verbal inspiration means that we believe that the very words of the Bible were inspired by God, not just the general concepts that you have in your Bible, but that the Holy Spirit in, inhabited people so that the very details and words that were recorded in those original languages were given to us word for word from God. Now, if you have a Bible in your hands there, or if you have like, you know, your iPad or whatever you look at your Bible with, you'll notice that the Bible is actually not a book. It's made up of 66 books. There's the Old Testament and the New Testament. So we can kind of divide it that way. We have the Old Testament, uh, which is made up of, of 39 books. Um, I would ask you what those are, but in the other two services, it didn't go so well. We had lots of guesses, 102 or 5 or whatever. There's 39 books in the Old Testament. And the Old Testament basically traces um, human history from the creation of the world, um, the birth of Israel, up to the coming of Jesus Christ. It's been said that the Old Testament is filled with the promises of God, and the New Testament is full of God, you know, giving us those promises or fulfilling those promises. So there's 39 books in the Old Testament. How many books are in the New Testament? 27, thank you. Yes, finally, 27 books. And uh, it begins with four books that we call the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Four accounts of the life of Christ from his birth uh, through the cross, um, his death, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension. And then we have the book of Acts, which we studied not too long ago, which chronicles the birth and the growth, the spread of the church. And then after that, we have some books that are technically letters, or they're also called epistles in the Greek. There are letters to believers to tell us how to follow Christ in, in this day and age. And it, it's all wrapped up with the book of Revelation, which talks about the coming of Jesus Christ. So the Bible that we have uh, was verbally inspired. Now, when God gave the Bible to, to people, he did not give them the Bible with books that had um, verses and chapters in it. Those were something that people added later. So when we got together, we could all get on the same page. Cha the chapter divisions that you have in your Bible today were developed in the early 1200s. And by 1551, the verses were assigned so that we can all kind of get to the same address. So if I say, let's go to 2 Peter 1.21, we all know how to get there. Uh, but those verses and addresses were not given to us originally by God. People added those later. Now, we believe that the Scripture is the highest authority. Uh, in fact, in the church, sometimes we refer to the Bible as the metaphorical supreme court of our faith by which all lesser authorities are tested. That's human reason and, and the theology that we've developed in tradition and culture. All of that has to measure up against the Word of God. And during the Protestant Reformation, there was a phrase that people like to use to describe the Bible. It was sola scriptura. Sola being alone and scriptura meaning writings. And what they meant by that was that the Bible alone is our authority for doctrine and what's true and for living and following Christ today. So the Bible was given to us by God so that we could really understand Him. 
A lot of people think that the Bible was given to us so we could have more rules. And so we could have rituals and a religion. The Bible was given to us so we could know God. It reveals to us God and, and his heart and what's important to him and what he loves and what he hates. It also reveals to us uh, a lot about ourselves. It helps us interpret human history. It reveals what sin is and our need for a savior and, and why Christ died for us and how we can have a relationship with him. In fact, it's interesting in the Bible, Jesus himself is referred to as the word. In John 1, 1, it tells us this, speaking of Jesus, in the beginning was the word. He's talking about Jesus. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. Now, I don't know if you've ever wondered why was Jesus called the word? Because when we talk about the word, we're talking about God's self-revelation and Jesus was the ultimate revelation of God to us. He revealed to us who God is and, and what God is like. So when we talk about worshiping God in spirit and truth, specifically in truth, we have to understand that we, we don't worship God as we think he should be, but we worship God as he has revealed himself to us. So we don't have to guess, we don't have to speculate. A lot of times in human re uh, relationships, you know, we kind of, sometimes we're not sure that we know people when um, my wife and I first started dating, and uh, we've been married 25 years this summer, so I guess it was 26 years ago, when we went out on our first date. We went to the same college. I knew her. We had some classes together. We talked um, every so often. We had friends that we knew that were, you know, knew us, and so I found out a lot about her through, through our friends, and I got to talk to her a little bit. So when we went out on our first date, I said, hey, you know, why don't, let's do this on our first date. Why don't, I, I'm going to write out some questions for you that I'd like you to answer. And you can write out some questions for me. And we'll just spend the evening getting to know each other. Because I, I didn't want to know what her friends thought of her. Or, and I didn't really want to know what I thought of her. I wanted her to tell me what, what, who she was and what she liked and what she didn't like. I wanted to hear it directly from her. When we come to the Bible, that's really what we're talking about. God has told us about himself. And, and, and who he is. So when it comes to our relationship with God, we don't have to guess. God has made it possible for us to know him and to worship him. To know him, to appreciate him, to be in awe of him. And so the, the first reason why the Bible is such a big part of what we do in here when we gather together for worship is because it's God's self-revelation to us. There's a second reason that it's a big part of what we do, and that is because it's, well, it's destiny changing. In 1 Peter 1.23, speaking um, about salvation, it says this, For you have been born again, not of, of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. What it's telling us here is that salvation isn't the result of human strategy or human thinking or a great evangelist or a well-written sermon. It's, it tells us that, that somehow God uses the power of his word to draw people to himself. So that's why um, every weekend I always look for some way, no matter, it doesn't matter what we're preaching, it doesn't matter what passage we're in, it could be in Genesis or the Old Testament, but I'm always going to find a way to talk about Jesus and to talk about the gospel and to talk about the cross because it is the power of God unto salvation. And if somebody comes into church on any given weekend and they don't know 
Jesus when they came in. We want to preach Jesus to them at some point. I want to tell them that God loves you and it's a plan for your life. You've, you've sinned, you've walked away from him, but that's why Jesus came. He took your place on the cross and he died for you and now he offers you the free gift of salvation through what he's done. There is a power in the gospel, in the word of God, that can draw people into a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. And so that's the second reason that we preach the word in our church. And the third reason is because it's, it's life-changing. For those of us who know God, we understand that there is a power in the word of God that's difficult for us to explain, but we know it's there because we experience it. Now, when, when God speaks things change. When Jesus was on this earth, he would speak and things would change. Jesus would speak to a storm and it would just calm down. There was power in his, in his word. He would speak to someone who was sick and they would be healed. He, he would speak to a person who was demon-possessed and the demons would flee. He would speak to someone and their sins would be forgiven. Uh, and if they were blind, they would receive their sight. And people who were dead would be raised from the dead. There was power in the words of Jesus. And God is still changing people, even today, through the word of God. The Bible that we have is not some ancient book that was written and it's just, it's just ink on a page. That what we're told is that it's alive and it's active and it's living. And when we get it into our head, it gets into our heart and it changes us. In 2 Timothy, in the passage we're looking at today, notice what Paul says. All of Scripture, all of the Bible is inspired. Remember, that's, that's God-breathed. And it's profitable. That word profitable literally means that it, it delivers something. It, it benefits us in some way. It, he says it's profitable for teaching and reproof and correction and training in righteousness so that the, the man, the woman of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. A couple of things he says about the power of God here and, and how it's profitable. He says the Bible is profitable for teaching. That literally means just that it teaches us what is right. When we read the Bible, we can discover what is right and what is true. It helps us form doctrine. It helps us form theology. Sometimes people tell me, well, I'm not a theologian. That's not true. Every one of you are theologians. Theology is just a view of God. Everyone has a theology. All of us are theologians. It's just some of us are, have a biblical theology and some of us do not. Some of us have a deeper theology than others. But the Bible says all of us have a theology and the Bible is, it teaches us what's right. The second thing is it says it's helpful for reproof. That is, it, it exposes what is not right. The Bible exposes sin and, and false thinking and wrong living. And sometimes after a sermon, you know, somebody will come up to me and they'll, they'll say, I just feel like I need to confess my sin to you because you obviously know all about it when you were preaching. I know you were preaching to me, but, you know, usually I'm like, I, I don't know anything about your life or what's going on. I think maybe God was talking to you. And I don't know if you ever do that, but you read the word sometimes. It's like God speaking right to your heart and exposing sin. And that's what the Bible does, and that's good for us. It's for teaching, reproof. It's for correction. Correction means it shows us how to get right. So it teaches us what is right. It exposes what is not right. And it shows us how to get right. It sets our path straight. And then it's helpful for training in righteousness. It teaches us how to stay right, how to pursue God in our relationships and pursue God through our job and pursue God through our finances. It sets us straight. It trains us in righteousness. And notice the result of all this. It means that we are equipped for every good work. What that tells me is this, that God uses the word 
to make you the kind of husband or wife that you want to be and that you need to be. It can help you be the kind of parent that's a blessing to your kids and that makes it, a, it, makes it great for you. It, it helps you know how to be a good friend and how to be a follower of Christ. It profits you in your finances. It profits you in your vocation, in your education, and in choosing what job you'll take and all of that. It says that it equips us for every good work that God has for us in life. Getting the word into our life is, is profitable. In fact, when he says this here, when he says it, it equips us for every good work, it reminded me of Matthew 5, 16, where Jesus is speaking to his followers and he says this, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. What he's saying is this, he's saying, as, as you follow God and you get into the word, Jesus is saying that God will do good things through you. He will work good things in your life. And as he does that good work in you, it's going to bring glory to your Father. Now that word glory simply means to worship. So what he's saying here is that there's a way we can live which brings worship to God. In fact, I would connect it all this way. When God's word gets into my mind and God's word works its way into my heart, it's gonna change the way I live. And as it changes the way I live and the way I parent and the way I'm a husband or a wife and the way I'm an employee and a friend, as it does that, it's going to bring glory to God. And that is worship. So why is the Word of God such a prominent part of what we do in here in our worship services? Because it's God's self-revelation to us, and that's where worship always begins, because it's destiny-changing and because it's life-changing. It's, it's changing us. Authentic worship always begins with God's self-revelation. Authentic worship never begins with a song. It never begins with a prayer. It begins with the Word of God. And as we see God's word, then we can see God. And as we see God and know him, we can begin to marvel at him and, and to reflect that to the world around us. As one writer said, the word of God is to worship as air is to breathing. So why is it such an important part of what we do? Because it's really the foundation of worship, which is quite frankly, when you think about it, we kind of do things backwards, and historically the church has. It's always made sense to me that we should probably start with the sermon and then sing. Because singing should, I just think, should always reflect what we've talked about. And, and some weekends, like last weekend, we spent a little more time singing at the end. And I always think that's kind of a better reflection, but kind of turning that around, I don't know. It would mess up kids' church and everything. I don't know. But this just makes sense to me. But here's the second question I want to ask you, and that's this. So we understand why the Word is so important in worship, but why preaching? Why has preaching always been such a prominent part of our worship services? Like, why not just have somebody stand up and read the Bible for 30 minutes? and uh, be done? Or why not circle up and have a theological discussion? Or, or why, why, why don't we just have somebody come up with a whiteboard and scribble some notes and give some outlines and academic analysis of, of the text and the context and the grammar? And, and why not just do that? Well, this is why we don't just do that. And this is our big idea for the weekend. Preaching is teaching the mind and reaching the heart. That's what preaching is. It's teaching the mind and it's reaching the heart. So there's teaching 
And that's a biblical concept. The Bible says there should be teaching. But teaching is the giving of information. Uh, teaching is giving outlines and teaching is giving systematic doctrine and teaching is, is helping develop skills and that's really important and we all need teaching. But that's not preaching. Preaching is different. Preaching is teaching plus. Preaching is starting with the word of God but then it's not just ending with the mind, it's connecting with the heart. In our passage here in 2 Timothy uh, going to chapter 4, verse 1, notice what Paul says here to Timothy. Timothy was a young pastor, by the way, who Paul had been discipling, and now he's leading a church. And so Paul's writing to this young pastor, and he says this, Now, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God. So this is kind of heavy stuff here. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus. In other words, pay attention to this. Who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing, and by his kingdom. So he's kind of just setting this up, okay? And then he says this, preach the word. He doesn't say teach the word. He doesn't say just give outlines of the word. He tells this young pastor, I want you to preach the word. Don't simply teach it. I, I don't simply explain it. He says, I want you to preach it. And that word preach means to herald or to announce or to proclaim. In other words, it's not disinterested or cool or neutral. It's passionate. It's not just the head. It's the heart. Now, like I said, there's a place for teaching. This is just not the place. When I was in seminary, I had several really good teachers. I had a Greek teacher who was a great teacher. I don't think he could have preached if his life depended on it. He didn't know any jokes he could actually tell. He never told interesting stories. When he taught Greek grammar, it never caused me to worship God that I'm aware of. Usually just made me sweat and worry about the test. He was a great teacher of information. But that's not what Paul tells Timothy to do. I want you, he says, to preach the word. I want it to be a passionate thing that doesn't just teach in the, in the head, but I want it to touch the heart. Because we need that. I mean, we need that passion. When we, when we talk about the cross of Christ, I mean, there's a place for, for discussing like the substitutionary atonement of Christ on the cross. There's a place for talking about the ransom theories involved in, in the atonement. But when it comes to preaching, it's something different altogether. What Paul's saying is, man, this is something that I don't just want people to think of up here. I want them to feel it here. Because the cross is, I mean, the cross demands feeling, doesn't it? There are some things in Scripture that are so big and they're so great and they're so grand. He says, when you talk about God... I don't want you just to think it. I want you to feel it. When you talk about the goodness of God, the omnipresence of God, the omnipotence of God, the immutability of God, the eternality of God, and we could go on. I don't just want these to be principles that you know. I want you to feel them inside. What is so important about the eternality of God or the sovereign goodness of God as we talked about a few weeks ago? He tells, he tells Timothy, this is something I want you to connect with the heart of the people. Don't just teach the word, but preach the word to the people in your church. You see, there's a connection between preaching and worship. Because the two indispensable ingredients of true worship are, are truth and spirit. Remember back in John 4, 24, we talked about that. That's what we really have going on in preaching. Preaching is an understanding of God with the mind, which is truth. 
But then it's a feeling with the heart, or we would say the enjoying of God with the heart. And this is one thing I've been trying to drill down in this series. God isn't just someone to be known. God is someone to be enjoyed. God's beauty is not just something to be seen. God's beauty is something to be enjoyed. The goodness of God should be something you enjoy. The imminence of God should be something you enjoy. The immutability of God should be something you don't just know about. It should be something that brings joy and peace to your heart because God wants to be enjoyed, not just known. And if you, if you know about God, but you don't enjoy God, then quite frankly, you don't get God because God isn't somebody you can just know and not enjoy. And that's what preaching is about. Feeling without understanding is just baseless emotionalism. That's not what we're talking about. But, but understanding without feeling is just dead intellectualism. And that is also not what we're about as a church. And this is why the Bible continually calls us to do things like think and consider and study and meditate. But it also calls us to rejoice and to celebrate and to delight in God. Because both are essential for worship. And preaching is an important part of worship. Because it unites those two aspects together. Preaching is about knowing God. So it's why we talk about theology a lot. It's why we talked about the attributes of God a few weeks ago. And sometimes, you know, we're like, well, I'm not a theologian. But again, that becomes the groundwork for us to appreciate God and to enjoy God. And notice how Paul describes it here, in fact, in verse 2. Specifically, he says this. He says, I want you to preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. What does it mean to preach the word? He gives us a couple words. It's reproving, rebuking, exhorting with great patience and with instruction. Now, again, we talked about the word reproving earlier, but that means just to call sin what it is. So part of preaching is to call out sin. Now, I, go the, I know it's becoming increasingly unpopular in the church today, and we don't like to call out sin because it, it makes people upset, and then they don't feel good about themselves, and it hurts their, their self-image, and they don't want to come back. And, you know, there's a lot of pressure on pastors today to not call out sin because people might not come back, and if they come back, they might not give, and the church is going to go downhill. But, but notice what he says here. You've got you've to call sin what it is. So we don't call it a mistake. We don't, we don't call it a misstep. We call it sin. Sin is sin. So part of what he says is when you're talking about greed, be sure to mention that greed is sin. Be sure to mention that lust is sin. Be sure to mention that pride is sin and gossip is sin and unforgiveness. It's not just a bad habit. It's a sin. And the love of money is sin. You've got to call it out. Call sin, sin. He says, reprove sin. But then he says, rebuke. So don't just call it out, but this means to sternly warn. So you tell people, by the way, there are consequences for sin. And I find increasingly, we're living in a Christian culture where increasingly I talk to people who will tell me like, I know it's sin, I know that, but I also know if I do it, God will forgive me. I know that if I decide I'm going to go ahead and get a divorce anyways, even though I know it's wrong, I know God will forgive me and I'll get on in life. And I think this is kind of what he's talking about here. I know if I, I, know if I go online and look at something I shouldn't look at, I know it's sin, but I also know God will forgive me. And this is where I think Paul comes in and he says, listen, he tells Timothy, you need to warn people that there are consequences for sin. Will God forgive you? Yes. Are there consequences? Absolutely. 
If we choose to hold on to bitterness, there are going to be real consequences. So he says, tell people there are consequences for sin and disobedience. There are consequences for these things. So he says, rebuke it. Warn people, warn them that there are dangers in these sins. Will God forgive you? If you know him, he will. But will there be consequences? Yes, there will be. Be sure to point that out. But then he also says to exhort. Now that word exhort in the Greek literally means to, to, it means to come alongside someone and put your arm around them and pat them on the back. So I almost picture like the first part is punch people and slap them around and then put your arm around them and help them, you know, walk forward with that. Um, encourage people to do what's right. So it's not just telling people what not to do. It's also encouraging people. So if you were here in our last series, you might remember we had a lot of big ideas. And that last series was all about, here's some good things to do. We said in the last series, um, get in the practice of, conf don't hide your sin. Confess your sins to one another. Remember that? We encouraged you. Learn to confess your sin to someone because it will really help you. I know it's intimidating, but it's helpful. We encourage people. Uh, we said, be sure to forgive other people as you've been forgiven. And some of you kind of, you began to, to practice that in the last series. We talked about, you know, learning to trust people. And so some of you would come up and tell me, it's really hard, but I'm trying to do that. And I'd put my arm around you and say, good, let's, let's try that some more. And it's encouraging people to do the right thing. In the last series, we talked about improving your, your ratio, your six to one ratio, if you remember that, and, and to living a sustainable pace. So we don't just reprove and we don't just rebuke. We also come alongside and we encourage. And then he says this, we do it with great patience. So I think he's really talking to to the preacher here and not the people. I think what he's saying here is you have to understand that on, in, in, there's no one given weekend that's going to change every person in your church. And there's no one sermon that's going to fix everybody. And I, I don't know about you, but I find it in my own life that's so true. It's like sometimes in, in Obviously, I can't be at church on a weekend and listen to somebody preach, but I love to listen to guys preach. So during the week, I got about seven or eight guys online that I've known over the years, and they podcast their sermons, so I download them, and then I'll listen to them during the week, usually probably about six in any given week. And I don't have time to listen to six 40-minute sermons, so I have a little application that that. It, they'll play at double speed, but it doesn't raise their voice, so I can listen to sermons in double speed, which I, th I actually explains why I talk so fast, because I think I'm so used to hearing guys preach really fast that I just think that's normal. And I went a few months back and listened to a friend preach, and I was like, man, this guy talks so slow. And then I realized it's not him, it's just I. But, but when I listen, sometimes I'll listen to guys, and a couple, about four months ago, I was listening to a guy named John Piper, who's a great pastor, great teacher, and he was preaching through Acts chapter 17, in fact, on the same topic I taught on a few weeks ago. And he's talking, if you're here, remember the passage in Acts 17, Paul goes to um, Athens and he preaches in the Areopagus and he tells the people, oh, I passed this statue and it was to an unknown God. And then he comes and says, basically, um, if you remember the big idea that week was Jesus didn't come to put out a help um, wanted sign. He came out, he came to bring a help available sign. Jesus came not to be served, but to serve. And Paul said, God isn't someone who can serve. Worship isn't about bringing stuff to God. Worship is about coming to God with empty hands and telling God, God, I need you to serve me. That's what worship is. Sounds odd, but God, I need you to serve me. I need you to give me more of yourself. 
And so about four months ago, I was listening to him preach that sermon. And he, when he got to that point, something, something snapped in me. And I just realized that I had been feeling so much pressure so much pressure as a teacher to, to, to make sure that every sermon just nailed it. All the pressure as a pastor uh, to be sure I got it just right as a husband and just right as a father and just right as a friend. And I realized uh, that I was kind of at this point in my life where my whole life with God was all about performance. And when I felt like I was really doing well, I felt like God was happy with me. And when I wasn't doing really well, he wasn't. And something snapped in me when I heard that sermon that day and I realized yeah, you know what? I just need to let go of all that performance stuff and just realize that I'm nothing. I have nothing to offer God. I can only come to God with my hands empty and ask God, please fill me. And that was a sermon that just, it wasn't just a feel-good sermon. It didn't just connect here, but it changed my, my heart on that day. And it changed me. But I realized in, as I listened to that sermon, I've heard probably 25 sermons like that. And I don't know why I didn't get the other ones, but I got this one. And sometimes some of you will come up, in fact, I had someone come up this morning and say, it just kind of clicked for me today, Pastor, but I realized that it wasn't just today. I've read some devotions and some verses and other stuff, and it's all come together. But, but what he tells, what he tells uh, Timothy here is he says, Timothy, you just have to keep preaching the same basic stuff over and over and over and over and over again. You have to keep preaching grace over and over. It's not like, well, I preached on grace like three years ago, so I covered it. No. Preach grace again and again and again. Preach the cross again and again and again. Preach forgiveness again and again and again. Because I guarantee you, and this happens to me, no matter how many times I preach about grace, no matter how many times I go over and over and over, you can't earn God's forgiveness. You can only get it as a free gift. No matter how many times I say it, it never fails. Somebody's going to come up to me this weekend and say, I just got it for the first time. I'm so glad you finally preached on grace. I'll be like, I preached on grace 50 times and saw you standing there with a dumb look on your face. I'm so glad, though, that you got it today, you know? But that's why we keep preaching it over and over and over again. And then I got to finish this. And then he says, and, and instruction. And that word again, that word instruction just means, and some of your translations would read doctrine because that's what the word means. It means to impart doctrine. The doctrine of God. We need to understand God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit and humanity and sin and salvation and the Bible and the church and all, those, all of those doctrines. And sometimes people tell me, I find doctrine so boring and I'm just, I'm just old enough now to where I have the nerve. I've said this to a few people recently. They'll say, Pastor, I know you preach on doctrine. I find doctrine so boring. And I always tell them, doctrine is not boring. You're boring. You're boring. You don't get it because doctrine is not just, doctrine is God. Doctrine is a picture of who God is. If you think doctrine's boring, then what you're saying is God is boring. And God, my friends, is not boring. God is amazing. God is beautiful. God is, is wonderful. And the more I understand God, the deeper I dig into doctrine, here's what I find. The greater my doctrine, the more I understand God, the more I'm going to love God. The more I'm going to be in awe of God. The more I'm going to find that sometimes I cannot worship God standing up. I'm going to have to get on my knees. The more I start to realize my hand should not be like this. My hand should be like this. Because the greater your doctrine, the more you understand God. And the more you understand God, the more he's going to penetrate your heart the greater your joy. And that's why preaching is so crucial to worship. It's not just seeing God, it's enjoying God. It's teaching the mind and reaching the heart. And with that, Paul gives us a couple of verses to close with for warning. Watch this. He says, for the time will come, 
The time will come, and probably now is, when people will not endure sound doctrine anymore. People will not want to come to church and listen to doctrine. People will not want to develop systematic theology. They're not going to want it. But wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires. Don't want to hear doctrine. Don't want to hear the pastor talk about doctrine. I'm going to go to another church. I want to hear the easy stuff. I want to hear the fluffy stuff. I don't want to hear the fun stuff. Don't rebuke me. Don't talk to me about sin. Don't talk to me about repentance. Don't talk to me about changing. Don't talk to me about the cross. Just talk to me about, you know, the easy stuff, the fun stuff. They will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and they will turn aside to myths. A couple years ago, and I, I shared this with you in the past, but a couple years ago, um, my wife and I were visit, visiting with some friends who live in the area. Um, they, attended, they attended a church outside of the area, and they were thinking about, they, about coming to church in their own community. So we ran into them one weekend, and, and uh, they were asking about Gateway. So we're thinking about attending Gateway. Um, but the wife said to me, she said, but I have one question for you about preaching. She, so she said, um, uh, this last weekend, she said at our church, the pastor was on vacation, so the youth pastor preached. And she said, you cannot believe what he did. So I'm waiting here, some, oh no, what did your youth pastor do? And she said, he preached for 20 minutes solid. He went on and on and on and on and on for 20 minutes. So I asked her, I'm like, well, what does your senior pastor usually do? And she said, well, here's what he does. He gets up and he reads a Bible verse and he says a few words about the verse and then he tells a really nice story or he reads a poem and then we say a prayer and we're done. 10 minutes, if he's really on fire, it's 12 minutes. And then she looks at me and she says, tell me that you don't preach 20-minute sermons. And I told her, I don't think I've ever preached a 20-minute sermon. <laughs> but I tell you that because there is a lot of pressure and get rid of the doctrine and just tickle ears. And I tell this to you because next week, and you might make a note in your margin maybe somewhere in your notes, to go home and read Luke chapter 8. If you do this this week, read Luke chapter 8, verses 4 through 18. So I told you this is a two-part sermon. This week I'm telling you a little bit about what preaching is about. But I'll tell you, next week we're going to come back and talk about the fact that in the end, no matter how good the sermon is and how enthralling it is and how deep it is, none of that will matter if you are not the person that we're going to talk about next week. We're going to talk about the parable of the sower. And what you find in the parable of the sower is it's at least as much to do with the hearer as it is with the person who preaches. And so I want to encourage you as you leave from here today to pray for yourself this week. And, and I don't know if you typically pray for yourself, if you pray for your heart and you pray for your mind. But my prayer for us is that we would be this kind of church that, that, that Paul talks about, where there is a sound preaching, where there is a deep doctrine. Why? Because we love God and we want to get to know God better. And we're not going to water down the gospel and we're not going to water down sin because we're not going to water down the cross. We are going to exalt and we are going to rejoice and we are going to magnify God because he is a good God and he has done amazing things for us. Amen? Let's pray.